Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is Behind the Scenes. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter, and today I want to introduce you to Michael Olmert, who is an author for the Colonial Williamsburg Journal. And Michael has devoted a, a great amount of time to studying outhouses, ten outbuildings. Years. Ten, ten years. years. What got you started? What what interested you? I get interested in outbuildings because they really are the stepchild of historic pres preservation. I mean, it's easy to fall in love with the governor's palace or the or the Wythe House, but look at all these buildings. In the, in the backyard where the work was done. And, uh, what, and they're really well made. But here's the interesting thing. It, they really tell us a lot more about the 18th century. There's that, of course, that, that, that 18th century that's really elegant and beautiful and everybody had great taste. But there's another part of the 18th century, which is the, the savage part, and uh, where life was difficult. And people like you and I would have been in, working in those backyards. I mean, these backyards is where people lived, their whole lives. They built the buildings that they lived in and they worked there their whole lives. So it gives us a sense of that, that other half and not just enslaved people but indentured servitude people living back there too. So that's the chief reason I was interested in it. But, and uh, these buildings are really well made too and, uh, and that's another reason that they've survived. So. so you use the word savage to describe what happens back there. Tell me more about the demarcation between the, the main house and then these outbuildings in the back. Well, I mean, the, there's the front part of all of our lives, and then there's the real part of our lives. I mean, architecture is always said to be about the presentation of self. So if you walk along Duke of Gloucester Street and you look at the front of all those buildings, you say, oh, my God, these people really, here's a town full of wonderful buildings. There's no, there's no um, um, lower class element that you can see. But next time you're walking along Duke of Gloucester Street, go into the backyards. And look, and look and see these, these little teeny structures, these privies, these laundries, these kitchens. And there would have been barns and lots of other little tiny vernacular structures that people were living in. And that really represents more of life for me rather than just the, the upfront, you know, well-bred um, part, part of the 18th century. I mean, in, in, the, in the backyards of the Peyton Randolph house, there were 27 slaves living. So it was much more humanity pressed together in the backyard. So a much greater population in the backyard than in the, in the house itself. Well, at least if, uh, in 1770, slightly more than 50% of the population of Williamsburg was black. That means 50% of the people were living in the backyards, you know, over the kitchens, over the laundries, and some, in, in barns, you know, just huddled together there. What a thought that there would be more people in the backyard to serve the needs of the people in the in the house. Yeah. Well, that's what that's what the that's what the census of seven, 1770 was found by Harold Gill and um, Kevin Kelly about 25 30 years ago. And it, it came as a thunderclap. Uh, well, Virginia's general population in the 18th century roughly 50% black too. But he used to walk around Williamsburg and people would think, "Well, look look at these backyards. Look at the privies. They were painted in polychrome colors." Um, 25, 30 years ago. And now it's just, you know, the, the paint is peeling on a lot of these buildings in the backyard. And that gives a better sense of, of what the backyards really were like. I mean, the best one of all, I think, is the Weatherbird's Tavern backyard. All those, uh, all those buildings back there, they had Spanish brown and then some lime wash on top of it. Lime wash is peeling off. The buildings are kind of grayish. There's no um, um, grass in that backyard. It's just brick bats and shells, keep people's ankles out of the mud at least. 
It's a very demotic backyard. Describe for us some of the buildings that you're talking about. When you talk about this collection of outbuildings, there are several types. What, what, are, what kinds of buildings are we talking about? Well, uh, the basic eight types that are in, in, in this book, um, kitchens, laundries, dairies, um, privies, smokehouses, offices, uh, which are a more elite sort of building, um, dovecotes, buildings for keeping doves, and uh, ice houses, that, that's eight. And every one of them are texts. They tell us the, tell us the way we live. Speaking of texts, as I was reading your book, it struck me that you can read these buildings in kind of two ways. You can look at them as, as structures that are fascinating, just that they are built to support one specific function. Mm -hmm. So it tells us about technology. But then there's a second way you can read it, and you can see them as sort of a social history. I think it's associated with slavery. That's, it's the technical term among historians is social separation. It's a way of keeping the races apart. Another term associated with that is rule by ostentation. If you take the covered way between the kitchen at Peyton Randolph and the dining room, there's a sense in which the upper classes did not want to be seen to be having to do any work to make their meals. They just wanted the meals to show up as if by magic. Um, so it happens, it's done by other people. I mean, the white ladies would have walked down the covered way and would have interacted with people actually cooking in the kitchen. But when they sat down for a formal meal, the, the meals just appeared. And that sort of magic seems to endorse their control of most of the property and most of the wealth in the colony. So it's ruled by ostentation. Would it look any different if God hadn't favored them and blessed them, you see? So it's a kind of performance. And that seems like a, a mean-spirited thing to say. I'm not, I'm not judging those people. I'm just, I'm just saying it really was a theatrical performance. And the architecture is there to show us how it worked and that it really was working that way. I mean, in England, all the great houses, their kitchens aren't separated. There aren't someplace else. They're downstairs, and the, and the meal still appears um, as if by magic. But because of the racial difference, I think, in the Tidewater especially, and in, and in New England, for example, most of the kitchens are not separate buildings. They're in, they're in, the, in, the, in the main house. So that's yeah. a little bit about the, the social history. What, what also fascinated me reading this was how specifically these buildings were built to this purpose. Tell me about the architecture of a kitchen and how it is unmistakably a kitchen. What do you see in a kitchen that you don't see anywhere else? Well, a, a, a large hearth and a large chimney. Sometimes there's an addition to that um, um, chimney that has an, an, uh, an oven. An oven is, is sort of a, a, a brick hole, cave, that you, you put a fire in. You make it very, very hot. Often they don't have flues, so all the smoke came back in the house. It, it's, you've been to one of those uh, a modern um, pizza pizzeria that has a wood-fired oven. They just build a fire in there and it heats the thing up. And then they rake out the coals and put in the pizzas. Well, that's sometimes called a two-day or two-day or three-day oven in the 18th century. They'd put a fire in there, let it burn for a couple of hours. The whole um, mass of bricks holds the heat in. They'd rake out all the coals and then they'd put in roasts. And uh, as it cooled down, they put in things that didn't need as much heat so that then they're doing meringues and, and then drying flowers or seeds and things like that, or fruits the last, last days. And there's, there's a bunch of those around town. The other thing about kitchens is they're usually going to be um, 
story and a half buildings. And then that half story up above, uh, slaves were living. Hottest place on earth to live in the summertime. Most of them would have dragged their mattress tickings out into the yard and slept, slept in the yard where they were eaten alive by mosquitoes. It was a tough place to live, uh, tough place to live. I have to ask you about outhouses and some of the construction that you found was so surprising to me. An outhouse with five seats. Yeah, I mean, that's um, the great um, British novelist L.P. Hartley. The opening line, the opening two sentences of one of his novels is, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And that's a remarkable two sentences because the past is a foreign country. We, it's hard for us to wrap our minds, about, at least my, my little mind anyhow. Here you have uh, a five-holder. There are some seven-holders. Look, if people are waiting in line to get in the bathroom, you don't need seven holes in there. They're all going in there at once and reading the paper and talking. There are no partitions between the seats or anything like that. So that just tells you. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just it's something we can't get our minds around. Culturally, we're so different. You know, we, get it, we have a sense of privacy and we depend on it. That didn't seem to bother them. I want to talk a little bit about how the arrangement of these outdoor buildings. You would have a, a grand house, say the, the Peyton Randolph house, that had how many outbuildings in the backyard? Well, well, a lot. But I, I think with barns and everything, there are probably 10 buildings back there. It makes me think about sort of the psychology of, of the colonist that we're almost recreating. It reminded me of something from Reese Isaac's book where he, he describes, um, it's the layout of the governor's palace, but that you have a, a sort of lord of a small country seat is what you're almost trying to replicate. The having these buildings isn't completely a necessity um, as much as it might be a show of wealth and prominence. That's absolutely true. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned Reese Isaac's book, I think, um, The Transformation of Virginia. It's, it's a terrific historical document and sort of changed the way that a lot of people looked at the 18th century. But um, the architecture also supports that, that the way that the, built, the, the rooms are laid out that there are a certain number of people can get so far into the building and fewer people can get a little farther in, but some of the very most important people can get right in the same room with the governor. And that, in this little colonial scale, represents the same thing that's happening in palaces among royalty in Europe. It sounds to me like you find that outbuildings are almost a more honest history than, than the main house. Yeah, I have to confess that. I mean, there's there's something there's something about me. I I I, I like the underclasses, and I and I like um, I've always been suspicious of authority, and you know, historians we're we're human beings too. We we do reflect the way we are. I think. Where can people find your book? Uh, it's published by Cornell University Press. Find it on Amazon. You can find it in the Williamsburg uh, bookstore. Fantastic. Michael, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. We like hearing from you. Send us a comment at history.org slash podcasts. Check back often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.